0: Look, I don't know whether you saw, uh, but obviously you knew the Bath Festival has been on. But yesterday there was something I quite wanted to go to, but I was only getting a ticket at the last minute. And it was uh, Bella Mackey, who was booked to talk about her serial killer anti-hero Grace uh, from her novel Uh, How to Kill Your Family. I I think this is described as dark humour. Uh, But the delicious thing was, on the web page for this event was the word cancelled. (laughs) Now, I thought, ooh, what if she boarded the train at Paddington, but wasn't on it by the time it got to Bath? Maybe there's a video showing her boarding a Cheltenham train at Swindon and another shows are alighting at Kemble, and there's a witness reporting a mysterious landing and takeoff at the airfield. Now, imagine the novel or the TV drama about Bella's disappearance. The investigating officer, of course, is a detective chief inspector. That's pretty usual. They're under pressure from the high ups. Absolutely. Standard practice. There's a detective sergeant, isn't there, who regularly puts their foot in it, doesn't spot the clue, doesn't put two and two together. The poor sap, of course, is a dramatic device for firstly underlining the brilliance of the star detective, and secondly, requiring the star detective to explain to their acolyte and therefore to us, the reader or viewer, what the Dickens is going on. And there's one other question you may then ask yourself. How on earth is this plodding number two in the story ever going to step up when the boss retires? Now, the Bible as well as being scripture is a work of literature it has songs moses miriam love poetry letters history blood and gore prophecy dreams tragedy triumph disaster betrayal you name it it has it and like any literature editorial hands have been at it between the original drafting and our reading and hearing it. Editors, translators, inspired and benign, trying to help us understand the message, but they have been at it. So it's a literary work as well as scripture The trouble is I sometimes find it a bit too literary. Just an opinion, forgive me. Perhaps it's my, my own efforts at writing stories that alerts me to the tricks that writers get up to. This is how it goes. Time and time again in the gospels, the disciples are portrayed as being slow on the uptake. Jesus has to explain the parables to them. They say the wrong thing, Peter usually. He's the detective sergeant, I think. They miss the point. They forget what Jesus has already told them and he has to tell them again. What a sorry lot, we are asked to think. Poor old Jesus lumbered with this node of numbskulls. And like the detective sergeant, How are they ever going to be able to take on the boss's mission when he leaves them? Interestingly, the women don't conform to this pattern. Martha grumbles a bit about being the one who always has to make the sandwiches, but she knows what she's about. Her sister Mary is an ardent student. Jesus' mother ponders usually. Mary Magdalene's devotion to Jesus is inspired by more than gratitude alone. But back to the blokes mainly, Jesus isn't of course the star detective made to look good at the expense of his colleagues. But I do think the pedestrian responses of the disciples are that device to allow explanation to come to us, about the events of Jesus's life and his teaching. Rather than implying that we readers will be too dim to get Jesus's message without step-by-step explanation, the gospel writers pretend it was the disciples who needed this remedial instruction. Frankly, just as well, because I'm grateful for all these elaborations. You too, maybe. But old cynic that I am, I suspect there's a second reason for portraying the disciples in this way. At Pentecost, which we celebrate in a couple of weeks, the disciples are transformed. These timid, blundering, obtuse folk become confident, brave, articulate ambassadors for the good news of salvation right around the Mediterranean. I wonder, it's naughty of me, I know, but I wonder, did the Gospel writers and editors and so on, did they ever inflate the transformation, implying that the coming of the Holy Spirit turned complete clods? into the evangelizing wonders that they did become. Don't get me wrong, I'm not for a moment questioning that the disciples did not change in a profound way. What I am suggesting is that these men and women from the start had more to them than they are given credit for. After all, it was they who had the wit to discern in Jesus, something that impelled them to follow him for the three years of his ministry. And how come Jesus chose them if not for their innate potential to be inspirational when their turn came? James and Peter, Thomas, John, Philip, Judas and the rest did need the flame of the spirit to set them alight. But I think we should also celebrate the different gifts they must have brought. For when they were inspired at Pentecost and forever afterwards, they became remarkable in their different ways. They didn't become all the same. They weren't clones. The spirit built on their diverse talents So that the post-Pentecostal Peter was not the same as the new John or the new Philip or the new James. Now, today's Gospel. It's not really a conversation between Jesus and the disciples, supposedly at the Last Supper the section we heard from chapter 14 with the surrounding chapters of John 13 to 16, is known as the final discourses. It's more like a tutorial than a conversation over a meal or it's a collection of advice and reflections drawn from various moments during the later stages of Jesus's time with his friends. I'm fine with that either way. Jesus is explaining his mission as though the dim disciples failed to get it in the three years leading up to this. But of course, it's presented in this way, really, for us. Thank God it is. The verses we heard this morning begin with, the, with, the, with verse 23, where Jesus says, where it says, Jesus replied. So what did he reply to? It was this in the previous verse, 22. Then Judas, not Judas Iscariot, it says in parenthesis, Judas said, but Lord, why do you intend to show yourself to us and not to the world? It's a good question. But it's a literary device, of course, a signpost among the many messages John sets down in these chapters. And oddly enough, The way John tells it, I don't see that Jesus' words exactly answer the question. That's not to diminish what he says, not for a second, because he elaborates on how love for him and following his teaching are intertwined. He reminds the disciples, reassures them, promises them that the Holy Spirit will come. And he reassures them further, repeating that wonderfully warm, compassionate line that had opened this same chapter. Um, It's in various forms, but it's the famous, do not let your hearts be troubled. So what about Judas's question? Well, hats off here to whoever put these readings together. I find the answer to Judas's question in today's Psalm, written, you know, Yonkers before Judas asked the question. In the Old Testament, we're used to writers concentrating on the ups and downs of one people's history and their attempts to understand and come to terms with the nature of God. It's an exclusive narrative. We Christians happen to have appropriated it as though it were the history of God himself, but it's not. It's the history of a people getting to know God, trying to understand God. But Psalm 67 is an example of thought that is wonderfully inclusive It's not just about these people. It expresses a generous desire, not to bind God to one nation, but to share God with the world. Judas asks why Jesus meant to show himself to his friends and not to the world. The Psalm answers that God's blessing is to be so visible that all nations of the world will want to give themselves to God too. People should be brought to faith by example, by seeing this people thrive through their love of God. So Jesus might have said to Judas, I'm showing myself to you because after that, it's your job to show me to others and I'm sending you some help in doing this in the shape of the spirit. And so it was Judas's job, and Peter's, and James's, and the others, and before long, Paul's, and Timothy's, and Luke's. Many years later, it was down to the likes of St. Francis, St. Augustine, St. Ursula, St. Catherine, St. Patrick, St. David, and Barak, and Islid, and Dovan, and all the saints you've never heard of. And not just them, but their followers. And now, oh dear, it's us. Oh sure, it's Tim and Judith and Sarah and Mary and Libby with their specific roles. It's the church wardens and the archdeacon and the bishop and the archbishops. But it's you and me in the pews also. Boy, oh boy. Roll on, Pentecost. Amen.